Hey students, welcome back for chapter seven of our podcast lecture series for the asynchronous content of our Theories of Counseling and Psychotherapy course. Today we're going to be covering person-centered therapy. Before we do, let's take a mindful moment to gather and settle ourselves before we jump in. For this chapter's mindful moment, I offer a few moments of silence to allow you to check in with yourself, to utilize mindful strategies that you've already learned or are interested in trying, and going for it on your own, taking some independence and autonomy with your mindfulness needs in this moment. So I will just simply pause here, and you're welcome to pause the recording as well. Take the time to do what you need to do. It's impossible to talk about person-centered therapy without talking about Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers is the name that's associated with this theory. And he took a significant departure from traditional psychotherapy and posited that the client knows best. And really, the therapist doesn't need to do a whole lot. The client is the expert in their life and Rather than the uh, therapist holding a position of power, the client is the person who holds the power in that relationship. So we'll learn a little bit more about Carl Rogers and how he challenged the, at the time, were the fundamentals of psychotherapy and how he revolutionized this field. He's oftentimes referred to as the quiet revolutionary. He's not a loud, in-your-face, or really authoritative type of person. He's actually incredibly gentle and kind, and we get to see him in action um, in some very famous therapeutic videos called the Gloria videos, in which a real client, whose name was Gloria, consented to meeting with three different therapeutic practitioners, Carl Rogers, Fritz Perls, and Albert Ellis. So we get to see the full recording of each of those sessions, and there's some follow-up with Gloria to see what she felt was most helpful for her. So I won't give you any spoilers until we've covered Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, which is the work of Albert Ellis, and it's the final video in that uh, series of three. So once we get there, we'll talk about Gloria's perspective. But we get to see Carl Rogers in action, and it's pretty exciting to see the actual theorist at work. Rather than just reading their works or reading other people's opinions about them, we get to see it for ourselves. And the thing that I always remember about Carl Rogers is that this image of Mr. Rogers from the TV show for kids, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that's very much who he is and how he approaches counseling. So that's part of the reason why this approach, person-centered therapy, is so popular And it's one that's integrated into most people's theoretical orientation because it's kind and it really allows for the client to be seen as a person. And I think in our modern age, we see a lot of change when the client feels like they have a sense of ownership and agency 
when we remove that power dynamic that was so prevalent in earlier theories like psychoanalysis. The research he was conducting consistently supported this idea. Characteristics of person-centered therapy include the personal characteristics of the therapist. So in previous theories, we were a blank slate or kind of this neutral sounding board for the clients to bounce ideas off of. And we're starting to move away from that with this theory. Also emphasized is the quality of the therapeutic relationship. This is where the idea that it all comes down to relationship really starts to take root. And finally, the person's capacity for self-directed growth, if involved, in a therapeutic relationship. When given the proper soil, so to speak, a person will be able to grow on their own. The therapeutic relationship provides that fertile, beneficial soil, so the client is able to do their own self-directed growth. There are four periods of development in person-centered therapy. Remember that Carl Rogers was really quietly challenging the foundations of psychotherapy as a field at large. So he challenged the idea that the counselor knows best. For decades at this point, getting close to a century, therapists had been functioning under the belief that they were the know-it-all, the doctor, coming in to fix and diagnose patients who have problems. Person-centered therapy really started the turn away from that idea, shifting our idea of illness and wellness, shifting our idea of who is in power and why in the therapeutic relationship. Rogers also questioned the validity of advice, giving suggestions, using persuasion, teaching, and he was very skeptical around diagnosis and interpretation. This was a big thing in psychoanalysis that, again, being based on the medical model, You come to a practitioner who diagnoses you and makes interpretations that are basically like giving you medicine, trying to help you build insight based off these interpretations so that your internal conflicts can be resolved. Well, Rogers really doubted all of that. He doubted a lot of the science that was trying to be incorporated into psychology. He saw this as something that can't really be confined to hard science in the way that early practitioners were trying to understand psychology and psychotherapy. He also challenged the belief that clients cannot resolve their own problems without help. The first period of person-centered therapy provided a powerful alternative to the direct and interpretive approaches. Rogers introduced the idea of non-directive counseling. This is where the client basically has full control of the situation. They determine their goals. They determine what's going to happen during that session. And they're the ones who are in the seat of power. Person-centered therapy can oftentimes be viewed as permissive because the counselor is letting the client run the show. They're letting them do their own thing. The idea that the therapeutic holding environment provides the fertile soil the client needs in order to do their own self-directed work. The second phase of client-centered therapy, also called person-centered therapy, those are the same thing, reflected emphasis on the client rather than non-directive methods. This is why person-centered therapy or client-centered therapy is often lumped in with existential, B 
because we're not really focused on methodology here. We're not focused on what tool or what skill, what intervention we're going to use because the client's doing most of the work on their own. We're just here kind of to be in the journey with them. So we don't have a lot of methodology, a lot of skills that we need to memorize and have ready to use. We're going at the client's pace. And that largely is a skill in and of itself, is to let the client take the lead. The third period of person-centered therapy addresses the necessary and sufficient conditions of therapy. Rogers developed this idea in the late 1950s and extended into the 1970s. He set forth a hypothesis that resulted in this long three-decade period of research. It led to an initial publication called On Becoming a Person, which was published in 1961. He borrowed some ideas from Kierkegaard and was focused on the idea of becoming the self that one truly is. The process of this is being open to experience, having trust in your own experience, an internal locus of evaluation, and the willingness to be in process. We have to have enough faith and courage in ourself to recognize that we have an internal locus or an internal center of control and to be open to process. This is the idea of being open to the mess, being open to living in some gray area. We don't live in a deterministic world where things are already laid out for us. There's possibility. And when we're open to that possibility, we have the courage to be in the moment and let things get a little bit messy. This is how we become our true self. Rogers was very curious in what the ingredients for successful psychotherapy were. And this is where he focused much of his research. What he determined was the role of the therapist should be more like a facilitator, which allowed for honoring the inherent power of the client. Again, very much flipping the script from the traditional model in which the therapist was kind of like a doctor who diagnosed and fixed your problems through insight. And this idea was so profound that it actually was expanded into other areas of study, leading to student-centered teaching as well. The fourth and final phase is marked by considerable expansion of education, couples and family, industry, and groups. This also included ideas of this also included ideas of conflict resolution, seeking world peace, and becoming involved in politics. So we can see here another tie into that existential category. An emerging theme in Rogers' theory was this idea of power. And he was constantly interested in the power dynamic. When we perceive we have power, when we perceive we don't, how that dynamic can change relationships and change our perception of the self. And this is why his theory has been given the term person-centered theory. So over the years, there has been a shift in focusing on clarification of feelings to now more so focusing on the client's experiences, a little bit more blending some of that traditional psychotherapy with Roger's ideas. As the theory developed further, research continued to center on the core conditions that were assumed to be necessary and sufficient for successful therapy. Predominantly, the attitude of the therapist, which should be an empathic understanding of the client's world and the ability to communicate a non-judgmental stance to the client, along with the therapist's genuineness, were found to be the basis for successful therapeutic outcomes.
And the main source of successful psychotherapy is the client. The therapist's attention to the client's frame of reference fosters the client's utilization of inner and outer resources. Emotion-focused therapy is an evidence-based approach that was developed by Leslie Greenberg, and it's rooted in the person-centered philosophy, although it really synthesizes um, gestalt and existential therapies. We'll get to learn more about gestalt in our next chapter. Um, There's a lot of crossover between these, but emotion-focused therapy has its roots in person-centered therapy or the person-centered philosophy of therapy. It strongly emphasizes awareness, acceptance, and understanding of emotion and the visceral experience of emotion. The idea that feelings exist in your body. Our emotional feelings exist in our body, not just physical sensation. And that some of our physical sensations are actually indicators that we're having an emotional experience. It also posits that emotional change can be a primary pathway to cognitive and behavioral change. Sometimes we get stuck on focusing on one aspect of this. Oh, we're having some distorted thinking, so let's focus on the thoughts. Oh, we're having some maladaptive behaviors, let's focus on those. So emotion-focused therapy brings our feelings back into it and lets us know, hey, those physical feelings you're having in your body, those might actually be cues about your emotions. We can do something productive with this. In fact, Leslie Greenberg stated that EFT is designed to help clients increase awareness of their emotions and make productive use of them. We're not just interpreting them and gaining insight. We want to use that insight for change. There are a range of experiential techniques that are used to strengthen the self, regulate affect, and create new meaning. In psychological context, when you see the word affect, it's spelled A-F-F-E-C-T. We're talking about feelings, emotions, and regulating your feelings or emotions really means allowing yourself to have them without being overwhelmed by them and without shoving them down and repressing them. So in EFT, we're looking at strengthening ourselves, regulating our emotions, feeling them, expressing them in a healthy way, and creating new meaning. So there's that pinch of existential here where we're creating meaning in our subjective realities. EFT strategies help clients with too little emotion be able to access their emotions. For some of our clients, especially those who may be experiencing depression, but we also see this in clients who have some neurocognitive disorders, such as autism spectrum disorder, where emotional experience can be a little blunted or muted. Sometimes uh, a person is not able to assign an emotions term like happy, content, sad, infuriated. They're not able to assign that label with the feeling they're experiencing. This phenomenon is called alexithymia, where you cannot assign the label to the emotion you're experiencing. And EFT has a variety of strategies to help folks in this situation be able to gain more understanding of their feelings and be able to access them. It's also beneficial for clients who experience too much emotion be able to contain them. So for some of our clients who maybe are on the manic side of things, or maybe there's some trauma involved, or maybe some histrionic type of personality 
where everything is grandiose and everything is big and it can be overwhelming, EFT is also beneficial for this population to help bring things back down. Again, we're regulating affect. Feel your emotions, express them in a healthy way, and carry on. We don't want to uh, suppress them, but we also don't want to be overwhelmed by them. So EFT is very effective in treating anxiety, intimate partner violence, eating disorders, and trauma. And you might be asking, how is it beneficial for treating intimate partner violence? Well, a lot of times in violent and traumatic situations, we, as a survival strategy, turn off our emotions. So in intimate partner situations where repair work can be done, being able to get in touch with your emotions, being able to recognize viscerally in your body when your anger is rising or when your stress is rising could be triggering for a episode of violence. Maybe we can intervene um, and take some action there. EFT is a strategy that you'll see pop up again when we talk about gestalt therapy. It pops up when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, as this is a way of reintroducing and emphasizing emotions. As previously stated, sometimes other theories get a little too locked in to one aspect of our being, distorted thoughts, maladaptive behaviors. And a lot of times now EFT is being included in those strategies and in those very tool-oriented approaches because the reality that our emotions are such a motivator in our process of change is becoming even more empirically based. EFT is an evidence-based strategy, which is great for us who are billing insurance companies. And it's really um, a way of strengthening the science of psychotherapy um, by having these evidence-based practices in our repertoire. One of the things that makes EFT a little bit different. And remember, EFT takes in a lot of different things. It has some existential, has some gestalt. Its roots are in person-centered. So its root is looking at what's your emotional experience in this. Where does this emotion exist in your body? Not me telling you where I think it is, but you, the client, being the expert, telling me. So we see a strong person-centered root there. However, in EFT, the therapist is actively working. Person-centered approach, therapist is very passive, but in using the EFT tool, if you will, the therapist becomes much more actively involved in the process. It was interesting to be a counseling trainee in the midst of the Tubbs fire in 2017 because there, our work changed dramatically. We had been at our sites for about two months when everything changed for us and all of our clients were now trauma clients. And we saw all these different community responses and the therapy community especially was trying to figure out what's the best way to help people right now. So there was a lot of dialogue on community trauma, community grief, layers of trauma and grief being, you know, Santa Rosa was impacted, specific areas of Santa Rosa were impacted in different ways. So there were a lot of groups for anxiety and healing being held. And what emerged out of all of this were a lot of groups for EFT, 
for fire survivors because so many people were getting stuck in one emotion, fear. And being stuck in that emotion was prohibiting people from moving forward. It was prohibiting people from getting the insurance companies on the phone, from updating family members, doing all of the many little processes along the way to move forward from that traumatic event. So there were a lot of workshops, a lot of free workshops actually were offered in the community that were EFT based. Um, EFT uses a strategy called tapping and we'll explore this in our synchronous learning together. Um, to give you an overview of it, it's essentially bilateral stimulation of the body at different nerve points. So you tap, you know, if you imagine a penguin and how they waddle and their fins tap each side of their body as they waddle, that's kind of what EFT is like. You're doing this um, tapping back and forth on both sides of your body to re-engage your brain and your body together. So it's heightening your uh physical awareness of your being. It's a bit grounding and it introduces the ability for your emotions to exist in your body and be known in that way. So I use this strategy with my clients a lot. I work with a lot of trauma victims, particularly children. So I use EFT and we do a body map, which we'll also do in class. Uh, We do a body map and it's basically like a gingerbread cookie, a neutral looking humanoid shape. And um, your clients, so my kids, identify where certain feelings exist in their body. And taking a very person-centered approach to it, uh, I let them pick which emotions they want to talk about. I let them pick how they demonstrate them. Some kids use geometric shapes to identify those feelings. Like one kiddo used triangles for anger because it felt like little pokey stabby things in their stomach was how they described it. So they drew little orange triangles in the humanoid body. I had another kiddo who expressed her emotions on the body map through fashion accessories. And at the time, I thought she was just goofing off and not really participating in therapy. I was like, okay, how do I get her back on track? Because she had drawn sadness as a scarf around her neck. And it happened to be wintertime. I was wearing a scarf that day. I didn't think anything of it. Until six months later, she had an episode of self-harm in which she tried to strangle herself because she was feeling sad. And that body map image popped into my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, sadness is a scarf around her neck. Her sadness is strangling her. It's choking her. And there was such a big revelation and we made so much progress when I brought that body map back into therapy and said, do you remember when you drew this? Do you remember when you tried to hurt yourself last week? And she went, oh my gosh, I did know that. And it was this epiphany that her body holds wisdom. Even though she's a young child, she holds wisdom. Again, a person-centered approach here that the client is the expert in their own life. I probably would have made sadness very differently. I feel sadness in my body very differently. So I had to catch my projection in my countertransference, let her draw sadness as a scarf around her neck, and look where that got us. So that's how EFT and the person-centered approach can be directly beneficial in a therapy session. So we'll get to practice some EFT strategies in our synchronous learning together. So how do we get to this self-actualization? What gets in our way? 
Maslow had this theory, the hierarchy of needs. It's often illustrated as a pyramid. So picture a pyramid, a triangle. The bottom of it is the biggest part. It's the foundation for the rest of the structure, right? So at the base, where we start, is by meeting our basic needs, food, water, air, and shelter. If we don't have those, we can't focus on anything else. We have to meet our primary basic needs first. As we go up the pyramid, as we master each level, so to speak, we finally reach the top, the pinnacle of human existence, self-actualization. This is a pretty common theory. Most people are at least a little bit aware of this idea that we have to meet our basic physiological needs before we can get to, quote, the good stuff like love, attachment, self-fulfillment. But what we don't always know and what we don't always talk about is that this theory of self-actualization, it's not that you climb the pyramid once and you stay at the top. This is not a one-time deal. Maslow also talked about peak experiences. We get to the top of the pyramid, and guess what? Life happens. You get knocked down a few steps, and you have to try and get back up to the top again. And truthfully, we may only have a handful of peak experiences in our life. And some would say if we even get to a handful, that that's doing pretty good. Usually we get two or three, maybe. So this idea of self-actualization And how we get there is one that's commonly known, but also highly contested. This area of psychology and psychotherapy starts to get a little bit confusing when we're talking about humanistic, existential approaches, gestalt and person-centered therapies. At some point, we start thinking, like, didn't we already talk about this? Or I thought we covered that in a different chapter. Don't worry if you're feeling confused. There is a lot of overlap between these different theories. And it wasn't even clear to me until I started studying for the licensing exam. And one of the courses that I took to help prepare laid it out really nicely. So I'll share that with you. Think of it this way. Existential and humanistic are relatively the same thing. We're talking about these big questions in human functioning. Under the category of humanistic slash existential falls person-centered slash client-centered therapy with Carl Rogers and gestalt therapy with Fritz Perls, which we'll cover in our next chapter. So think of it that way, that humanistic, existential, relatively the same, Within that is gestalt and person-centered, and there's overlap there as well. Don't worry if you're still feeling confused. Sometimes when you see it happen in real time, so when we're watching the Gloria videos and discussing this in class, it'll make a little more sense. At least that's the hope. The reason why these are so confusing is because they share respect for the client's subjective experience and the uniqueness and individuality of each client. Not all theories are this way. It may feel like it right now because we're still in kind of the early to middle uh, part of our course exploring some of these theories. But once we move past humanistic and existential, we'll start seeing that not all theories view a client's reality as subjective. And some theories don't super care about the unique and individual qualities each client brings to the table. 
There's also an emphasis on these big concepts like freedom, choice, values, personal responsibility, and assigning meaning to things, and how those things can change day to day and over time. And this brings us to one of the most famous humanistic psychologists of all time, someone you may have heard of and not really realized it, Abraham Maslow. If Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that pyramid just popped in your head, you're totally on the right track, and we'll get there in just a moment. But Abraham Maslow contributed the idea of positive psychology. It shares concepts on the healthy side of human existence with the humanistic approach. One of the big themes in positive psychology and in Maslow's humanistic theory is this idea of self-actualization. Self-actualization is this goal we are all trying to attain, and it is where we are the truest version of ourselves. We've worked through our conflicts. We're living kind of a pure life, and this is something that's tailored to each person. My self-actualized Brittany is very different than your self-actualized you. There are different qualities in my story that may not exist in yours. So it's different for each person. Maslow believed that too much research and too much focus in psychology was being focused on what's wrong, on illness. There was too much focus on anxiety, hostility, and neuroses, and there wasn't a lot of focus on what's going right. There wasn't a lot of focus on joy, creativity, and self-fulfillment. Humanistic psychology and Abraham Maslow were really the first people to ask, well, what's going right? Taking a strength-based or a positive approach to understanding human existence, rather than identifying what's wrong and trying to fix it through a variety of means, let's focus on the strengths and let's use those strengths to get through the yuck and the muck that we experience. When we're able to do that, when we get through the yuck and the muck and we focus on these more positive things, we're on our way to self-actualization. Core characteristics of self-actualizing people include self-awareness, freedom, basic honesty and caring, and trust and autonomy. Other characteristics of self-actualizing individuals include a capacity to welcome uncertainty in their lives acceptance of themselves and others, spontaneity and creativity, a need for privacy and solitude, autonomy, a capacity for deep and intense interpersonal relationships, a genuine caring for others, an interdirectedness as opposed to the tendency to live by others' expectations, the absence of artificial dichotomies within themselves, such as work versus play, love versus hate, and weak versus strong, and a sense of humor. To sum all of that up, balance. We're looking for balance. We're looking for an ability to have deep and meaningful connections with other people and to be okay on our own. We're looking for an ability to really focus and be committed to something and to have a sense of humor, to let go of things. We're looking to be able to live in the gray area that is life. The key is acceptance. It is what it is. So you can see even in this list of characteristics for a self-actualizing person, there's wisps of just... 
there are wisps of humanistic and existential theories. This is why it gets a little bit confusing. There is so much overlap here. So this is an overview of that hierarchy of needs, the pyramid that Maslow created. So at the very bottom, the foundation where we all start is meeting our physiological needs. Once we have done so, we go up to the next step, which is meeting our safety needs. Are we physically safe? Once we've accomplished that, we get to bump up to the next level. Now we're near the middle of the pyramid. This is where our goal is to achieve belongingness and love needs, such as intimate relationships and friends. Here, people also tend to include attachment between parent and child or caregiver and child. Um, Having those secure relationships, emotional safety is what we're looking for here. Once we've accomplished that, we get to bump up to the next rung of the ladder, which is our esteem needs, our feelings of accomplishment. This is a very individualistic type of need to meet. And once we have done all of those things, in theory, we achieve self-actualization, our full potential, including creative activities. Here's why this is contested. While it makes sense that we would want to have our physiological needs met first, especially from like an evolutionary psychology perspective, we have evidence against this within the field of psychology. We have evidence that there are times where we will prioritize our relationships. We will prioritize our sense of accomplishment before we will meet our own physiological needs. We as humans have a tendency to be willing to compromise our basic needs and our safety in order to attain relational intimacy or to attain some sense of accomplishment. A great example of this is with an experiment that was performed with some monkeys. The experiment is referred to as Harlow's monkeys, Harlow being the researcher in the study. So they had two infant monkeys. And instead of having two moms to go with these infant monkeys, they had some artificial moms. And to be honest, they looked very creepy and looked nothing like monkeys, but that wasn't the point of the experiment. One of these robot monkey moms had just a bottle of milk. So she was kind of this wire frame, not very warm and cuddly and welcoming, but she had milk. So in this sense, she's meeting the basic need, but only the basic need. Now, the other monkey mom only had a soft, fuzzy covering. So one could theoretically cuddle up to this fake monkey mom and get some nice cuddle time, but no food. Now, according to Maslow, the monkey that had the mom with only the milk should have been happy, should have been ready to move forward in its development, should have at least shown signs of content. And the other monkey whose mom did not have milk, should have shown signs of distress. But what they found was that the infant monkeys preferred the mom who only offered comfort, who was only the soft, fuzzy covering. They would ignore the mom with the milk in order to go have that soft cuddle time with the fuzzy, fake monkey mama. What does that tell us? It tells us that our emotions matter, 
It tells us that attachment and intimacy are far more important than we initially gave them credit for. This is something evolutionary psychology doesn't account for. So, while Maslow's hierarchy of needs at first glance does make a lot of sense, it's not always true. There are times where we will sacrifice our basic needs in order to have those emotional and psychological needs met instead. So let's get back to Carl Rogers and our person-centered therapy here. A common theme that was in Rogers' early writing and is still very much alive in all of his works is a basic sense of trust in the client's ability to move forward in a constructive manner if the conditions are fostering growth. So when we're in toxic conditions, growth cannot happen, and that's the problem. The therapeutic space is one that can foster growth, and that's where we see the client start to take charge of their own life, and they're able to have some self-directed change. One of the analogies that's used to describe this is of an acorn. If you throw an acorn out into a field, it will, all on its own, become an oak tree. You don't necessarily have to dig a hole and put it in the hole and then cover the hole and water it and make sure it gets sun and do all of those things. Nature can do it on its own. The acorn doesn't need our help to become an oak tree if it has the right soil, if it has the right conditions. So if a person has the right conditions, like an acorn, they can grow into something beautiful all on their own. And our job is really more so to have that healthy space for them to do that. Our job is to create a growth-promoting climate. There are three attitudes or attributes that a therapist adopts in order to create that growth-promoting climate. The first is congruence. This refers to being genuine or being real. If we want our clients to improve as people, then we should be people with them. We should have an honest and authentic experience with them. The second attribute is unconditional positive regard. This is acceptance and caring, regardless of whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you believe about yourself, whoever you were before you walked into my office today, and whoever you are right now, You are a human being worthy of my time, my warmth, and my caring. So I will actively listen to you and be present for you. Even if the... (laughs) Even if dot, 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 whatever blank you can fill in, even if it's the most horrible, atrocious thing you can imagine. Remember back to that first day when we talked about populations you feel like you can't work with? Even when that person walks into your office, unconditional positive regard, acceptance and caring. The third attribute is accurate empathy and understanding. This is the ability to deeply grasp the subjective world of another person. You don't have to agree with it. And there are times where we very much don't. But to be able to understand it and to express that to our clients is deeply powerful. These are the attributes we have because the view of human nature in person-centered therapy is that at their core, humans are trustworthy and positive. It's those toxic environments that bring out the worst in us, but 
when we're in that growth-promoting environment, we go back to that kind of baseline of our functioning. Trustworthy, positive. Person-centered theorists often believe... Person-centered theorists also believe that humans are capable of making changes and living productive and effective lives. Humans innately gravitate towards self-actualization, regardless of the different beliefs around how we might get to self-actualization and what's most important. We innately want that. We grow towards self-actualization. And given the right growth-fostering conditions, individuals strive to move forward and fulfill their creative nature. So what's this like for the clients in therapy? Well, clients have the opportunity to explore their feelings, belief, behavior, and worldview. And because we're meeting them with unconditional positive regard, and we are having a congruent relationship with them, we're being genuine and real, we're just along the journey with them. They want to explore a new religion? Okay, let's explore that. How's that working for you? What fits? What doesn't? Clients also may hope to find the way through the guidance of the therapist. There are times where they're just really not sure, or maybe they need that little confidence boost of, remember when you tried this before and you had the courage to do it then, it didn't work out the way you thought, but you're actually better for it. So I believe that you can have the courage to do it again. The therapist is a guide in this situation. We're not giving advice. We're not telling them what to do. We're not prescribing things that are going to make them better, but we're going through the journey with them. Therapy, the therapy relationship provides a supportive structure in which the client's self-healing capacities are activated. You hear oftentimes the term container. We hold the container or we hold the space for our clients. This is a really client-centered, person-centered thought. Think of it as, okay, so our acorn and the tree. Let's make it a lemon tree because that'll fit in a pot a little bit easier. But you put the seed in the pot of soil and the seed grows into a tree relatively on its own accord. The pot simply provides a space for it to do that, and it holds the dirt necessary for the tree to do its thing, for the seed to become the tree, for the tree to bear fruit. That's what the therapist's job is, to be the pot holding the dirt. We hold the space, and we provide that growth-promoting environment, and we are along for the ride providing some guidance for the client. We don't tell them what type of tree to become. We don't try to convince them to be a bush instead. We are simply there walking through the experience with them. Our relationship provides a supportive structure so the client's self-healing capacities are activated. So what's the relationship between the therapist and the client like? Well, the following six conditions are necessary and sufficient for personality changes to occur. The first is that the two people are in psychological contact, not physical contact, which is great news for us here in the pandemic, uh, but that we're in psychological contact. This is where congruence and unconditional positive regard and empathy all come into play. I am seeing you for who you are as a person today, and I'm good with that. Psychological contact. The second condition that needs to happen 
is that the client experiences incongruence. So the fact that we are welcoming them and that we are accepting of who they are regardless of whatever it is that they can throw at us, that can be an unsettling experience at first because most people don't have that in the real world. If you go against or rebel against what your parents want or what society wants, you're used to people telling you what to do and they're trying to shape you into who they think you should be or who you could be. Not so in the person-centered counseling experience. We are accepting. You want to be a tattoo artist even though your Mennonite family strongly disagrees with that? Let's explore that. What would that be like? How do you want to move forward on this journey? How can I support you? However you want to do this. That's a little unsettling at first. There's a little bit of like, wait a minute, aren't you going to be like my mom and tell me not to do that? No, I'm, I'm not your mom. I'm your therapist. I'm your counselor. Oh, okay. Well, let's try it then. The third condition is that the therapist is congruent, they're genuine, they're being real, or they're integrated in the relationship. The important part with this is that the client perceives the congruence. They notice that we're doing this. It's part of what might make them feel a little bit anxious and nervous when they first come in, but we continue doing this. We continue showing up in the same way. We continue the acceptance. And so they pick up on this. The fourth condition is that the therapist experiences unconditional positive regard for the client. It has to be real. You cannot fake unconditional positive regard and expect this to go well. It is the whole foundation of this approach that I can accept you for who you are. And let me tell you, sometimes this is hard. I fully believe that I have a person-centered approach, a very Rogerian aspect to my integrated approach to how I counsel and how I provide therapy. And I'll be honest with you, there have been a few times I've had some birth parents, especially some attorneys and some other people I've had to work with, where it was really hard, really hard to just like them. And I kept having to go back to their base humanity. You are a human being. You are no different than I am when we really get down to it here. So on that basis alone, I will listen to you. I will hear you and I will do my best to help you. And there were some days where there was a lot of mudslinging going on and I had to just really talk myself through that. Brittany, this is a person, a person who is hurting. They're acting this way because they're hurting. Okay. All right. Now I'm back on track. But it has to be real. You can't fake it. It really does have to be real. So that's pr uh, premise number four, the condition that needs to be in place. The fifth of these conditions is that the therapist experiences an empathic understanding of the client's internal frame of reference and endeavors to communicate this experience to the client. Again, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to think what they did or what they are doing is good. Take the moral judgments out of it. Simply understand it. Can we peel back our own judgment, our own expectations, look at who people are as people? Understanding human functioning without all of our moral and ethical judgments. That's where sometimes we have to go in order to understand, in order to maintain that unconditional positive regard, 
And to meet condition five, experience empathy for the client's internal frame of reference and try to communicate this to the client. Some really great phrases that um, I've picked up over the years are things like, of course, of course you thought that way. Of course you're feeling this way. It makes sense to me. Condition number six, the communication to the client is, to a minimal degree, achieved. This leads us back to the idea that the quality of the therapeutic relationship is key. So in most theories, relationship is key. It always comes down to relationship. In person-centered specifically, the quality is key. So plugging in what we know now with these six conditions that we have to be authentic. We really do have to care about our clients, even if they're serial killers or serial rapists or, you know, whatever egregious thing you can think of, the person that you would least want to see come into your office, can you care about them on a basic human level? If so, that's great. That gives us the energy we need. That gives us the seed that we need to be able to understand their internal frame of reference. These conditions are described as being necessary and sufficient. Sometimes in person-centered therapy, it doesn't feel like we're doing a whole lot. We're more so being. And in the way that we are being, we're providing that corrective emotional experience which is that growth-promoting foundation the clients need for that non-directed or self-directed growth. It's not always about doing. Sometimes it's the way that we are. It's our being. It's important that the therapist is invested in developing their own life experiences to deepen your own self-knowledge and to move towards your own self-actualization. The idea that you have to practice what you preach here If you feel like you are trying to help your clients achieve their best, fullest self, or we might say live their best life, are you doing that yourself? Because if you're not, it's going to show in your therapy because you're not going to be congruent. If you're saying anyone can go along their own path to their own self-actualization journey, but you're not really doing it because you don't really buy it or you don't have the time, why should your clients think that they can or that they have the time? Being genuine and authentic is critical. Like all theories, person-centered therapy has changed over time and it's modernized a bit. And thankfully, even in the early days, Carl Rogers acknowledged that you do not have to be a self-actualized therapist in order to practice person-centered therapy. This is good news because as we've learned, most of us aren't in a self-actualized place. And even if we are, it's going to be a time-limited thing. So the good news is you get to bring yourself in as a therapist in all of your messy glory. And remember that person-centered humanistic theory loves that. That's our way to self-actualization is accepting our mess and our messiness. So take some comfort in that, that, you know, there's always going to be times where we're questioning ourselves, where we feel like, We're a little bit out of balance. And the idea with person-centered is that not only can the client still be on this self-actualizing journey, they can still be accepted, given unconditional positive regard. We can too, as the therapists. We can hold those uh, concepts for ourselves and for each other as we move forward in our practice. 
Some other ways that person-centered has evolved over time is that effective therapy requires us to be fully present and engaged with our clients. One of the ways that we do this, I think a great strategy is referred to as joining. You join with your clients in whatever it is that they're expressing. Um, Your book refers to it as being with your clients, entering imaginatively into their world of perceptions and feelings. Joining, similarly, is really being with your clients in that moment. And I think it involves being emotive. Some strategies and some therapists still today are a little more of a blank slate where let's say you come in and you're celebrating a promotion at work or you're celebrating the fact that you're graduating from grad school and you're really excited and you're emoting a lot about this. There are still some therapists today who would kind of maintain their composure, maintain a blank slate, maybe nod their head in an active listening position and say something like, and what is this bringing up for you? Person-centered theorists would be with. They would join in with you. They would get excited with you. Oh my gosh, I know you've been working on this for so long and you've put so much work into this. What are you feeling? What is this like for you? Notice the difference in how the expressed emotion felt more like me being with that client in the second example compared to the first. And perhaps this is one that's easier to illustrate visually. So you'll get to see this during our synchronous learning as well when we role play through some of these things. But being with our clients, that is such a person-centered idea that we're having this authentic, real experience with our clients. I'm not the doctor here to fix you. I'm the person here with you in your journey. So if you're excited, I'm going to be excited too. And some caution, if your client is really angry or really sad, you don't go all the way into that with them in that way. Um, That can be a little bit dysregulating. Uh, So we do still need to hold the emotions. We still need to hold the space, but we can express ourselves as well. So let's say a client is really angry at their intimate partner because they just keep doing this irritating behavior. They just will not close the kitchen cabinets. And it's a small thing, but it's so infuriating. A person-centered clinician might jump in and say, gosh, you know, my partner does that too, and it just drives me nuts. How are you dealing with it? Or what do you think that means? Or what's coming up for you? So a little bit of that human connection followed up with, okay, let's explore this a little more. Being with our clients is entering into their world and their perceptions and feelings. This is really critical if you're working with children and teenagers. If you are coming across as the expert who knows everything, you might be pretty hard-pressed to get a child or a teenager to open themselves up to you. If they are way into Pokemon, guess what? You are now way into Pokemon. And it may not be the most genuine thing, but again, take it back to that baseline of human existence. You know, my client is super into this. I think I can use this to help explore X, Y, or Z. So I'm going to try it. I'm really going to try and get into this. Listening, accepting, respecting, understanding, and responding have to be honest expressions from the therapist. Another evolution um, in the methodology of person-centered therapy is immediacy, 
or addressing what's going on between the client and the therapist. This is considered highly valuable. This can sound like, you know, things just feel different today. Or, I notice you interacting with me in this way today. Maybe it's, you seem a little less responsive than usual, a little less talkative. Or, things seem a little more hostile today than usual. Can you tell me what's going on with that? Since the quality of the relationship is so important, reflecting on it is also of great importance. That's immediacy. It's essential for a therapist to adapt their therapeutic style to accommodate the unique needs of the clients. That's one of the nice things about person-centered. You'll see the word tailored a lot, especially on professional websites. This clinician tailors the therapy to meet the client's needs. That's person-centered language, that we are doing whatever's going to work for the client, basically. Um, And again, this is really useful with children and teenagers. You're super into geology right now? Okay, I'm going to learn all about rose quartz and how you can uh, tumble stones to make them purified and whatever it may be. Or, okay, now you're into Pokemon. Great. Shift. Now we're into Pokemon. And I might reflect on that shift. I noticed last week you were really into rocks and now we're really into Pokemon. What do you think that difference is about? Just wondering about that. You may recall, as mentioned earlier in this lecture, that Carl Rogers was not a big fan of assessment. He thought that a lot of the scientific ways we were trying to understand psychotherapy weren't really conducive to an effective healing therapeutic relationship. So the focus on the quality of the therapeutic relationship sometimes lends to person-centered theorists and therapists not really using assessment very often. And this can be a pro or a con, depends on how you look at it, how what other theories might be integrated into your orientation, and truth be told, what insurance companies you're billing. Um, There are some times where they want that more scientific evidence of why you think this or why you are doing this. Why does this person deserve more sessions of therapy? And it really comes down to, why should we continue paying you for this? So the assessment piece is not as strong, but you can use the strength and quality of your therapeutic relationship to be an assessment tool. We do this through co-assessment with the client so they don't feel that traditional assessment and diagnosis. I give you this questionnaire, we figure out what's wrong with you, and we move forward from there. Not really. It's more so, let's walk through this together, and I understand you're not a fan of this. I'm not trying to diagnose you with anything, but, you know, for, uh, for like, these insurance purposes, we do need to have kind of something on paper so that we can uh, show them that there's a reason why you're here. And we know there's a reason why. That's what brought you here in the first place. So we just have to assign this jargony language to it by using this assessment. And, you know, it might help me figure out some of the better ways I can help you as well. So it's a much more collaborative process. Rather than the client coming in and you handing them a stack of papers or asking them a bunch of interrogation-style questions, you go through it together and you normalize. I get that you're not into this because most clients aren't. Most people don't want to feel sick. That's already a stigma around therapy. There's something wrong with my brain or there's something wrong with my being. We want to scoot away from that in person-centered. 
because we also want to take out that power dynamic. So let's go through this together. I know you're not a fan. This is kind of just a formality. It does give me some good information to work with, though. So let's do this as maybe as quickly as we can, or let's do this as, you know, genuinely, authentically as we can to get the information we need, not only for insurance, but so I can help you in the best way. So the evolution of person-centered makes the, it brings the assessment process back in, and it does so in a client-practitioner collaborative way, rather than you just asking questions and diagnosing them. So some of the philosophy around the person-centered approach. We want to stay with the clients. We're really going at their pace. And this includes interpretation. There is room for interpretation in the client-centered approach, in the more modern aspects of it. But we don't want to get ahead of them. We want to stay with them. We want to be straightforward as much as we can, easy to comprehend. I was just listening to a podcast the other day that was reminding me that anytime we're creating a document in collaboration with a client or creating a plan for a client, we want to be using language that's around the third or fourth grade level um, because that's what's easiest for most people to understand. And even if your client is capable of understanding higher grade level style of writing, coming to therapy can be a very anxiety-producing experience. Remember, they're coming in with the idea that Something is critically wrong with me, and I need to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix it. So if we can present information in a straightforward, easy-to-comprehend way, that also takes out that power differential that we're trying to avoid, and it helps put the client at ease, that they're understanding what's happening. And there's a time and a place for us to whip out our fancy academic language and psychological jargon. The client space is not that space. What's interesting is that while there's not a lot of methods that are necessarily associated with this approach, it requires a lot from you as the therapist to be fully present and fully engaged with each of your clients equally. So when you see 24 clients a week, that's a lot. And it may not sound like a lot now, And there are some weeks that are easier than others. Sometimes clients go through a nice time, so you don't have as much dirt to sift through, so to speak. But this can be really exhausting. Active listening, especially in a telehealth capacity, requires so much from you. This modality of therapy, taking a person-centered approach, really asks the therapist to give a lot of themselves to the client. And that's part of what makes the healing process so effective and what makes this such a widely used and accepted uh, approach to therapy because it gives the client power and what we give them is the corrective emotional experience of being listened to and of being valued. And again, these sound like basic things, but how many of us are missing those basic things? And you'll notice how much energy it takes from you to meet those needs. So there's an interesting dichotomy there. So without that person-centered way of being, if you're really not giving yourself and if you're really not connecting in a way with your client, it shows. And the application of skills is described as being hollow. One of the areas in which person-centered approaches can be really beneficial is with crisis intervention. When people are in crisis, they don't really need us to tell them what to do. 
they need to be heard. So this approach lends really nicely to that, where we allow people to express themselves, and that's the first step. Sometimes it's one of the only steps we need to take in crisis intervention, just letting somebody express themselves, and then we will follow up with a safety assessment just to verify our findings. But think of the tenets of person-centered therapy, genuine support, caring, non-possessive and non-judgmental warmth. This can motivate people to do something to work through and resolve a crisis. Thinking also about some crises that can have ethical judgments or ethical conundrums involved with them, such as an unwanted pregnancy, maybe a runaway youth, or different uh, crises that can have that ethical component to them, the person-centered approach can be a really nifty one to use because it takes out that judgment piece. It lets the client express themselves, express their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs about the situation without you having to do a whole lot other than be an active, empathic listener. One of the things we do know about crisis intervention is that communicating a deep sense of understanding is one of the most important parts. And this should always precede, come before, other problem-solving interventions. So when you have a crisis intervention course, you'll learn more about different strategies and steps you can take to help prevent self-harm or harm to others. Uh, But when it comes to these initial aspects of stepping into crisis intervention, listen, listen, listen. That's the best thing that we can do. And actually, the person-centered approach is taught to other fields outside of psychotherapy. Um, educators, people who work in ministry in a counseling supportive role, all of these individuals and more are being taught these ideas that we need to be listening to the client rather than just shutting them down and asking them to be compliant. So person-centered can be very useful in a crisis intervention environment. Um, There are times where the need is such that we have to take a more directive approach than traditional person-centered therapy would suggest. So sometimes just listening isn't enough. Sometimes there is a safety component to this. Action needs to be taken. So again, when you have those crisis intervention courses, trauma response, you'll learn more about this. But keep this in the back of your mind that the ideas and the basic principles of person-centered therapy can be really beneficial to crisis. And of course, in group counseling, the therapist takes the role of a facilitator who creates the therapeutic environment. That's not any different than how we are in individual work. Again, techniques are not stressed here. What we're really doing is creating that growth-prompting environment. The goal here is for group members to trust each other, to trust themselves, And the responsibility for the direction of the group is up to the members, and they're the ones who set the goals for the group. So many groups are structured this way. Uh, Many support groups are structured this way. When I was a school-based counselor during my traineeship, this was how almost all of our groups were. The children decided what they wanted to talk about, what they wanted to work on. And that was where we went. I followed them. I held the container at the therapeutic space, and they did most of the work. The group setting fosters an open and accepting community where members can work on self-acceptance. 
Remember that analogy of the acorn or the seed, where we provide the space and they really will do the work on their own because the aspect of human nature is that we have a self-actualizing tendency. We want positivity. We want growth. That's the view of human nature in person-centered theory. And in group counseling, individuals learn that they don't have to experience change alone. There's a sense of camaraderie and support in that way. And they can reflect on how they've attempted to make changes in the past week or past month, whatever the schedule may be. And group members can commiserate with them and say, you know, I tried that too and I struggled for a while, but I got through or this is what helped me. And so we see a lot more of group cohesion and group members really working to support each other um, with a person-centered approach. It can be really nice in helping that self-directed aspect really come to fruition. Person-centered theory does offer some strengths when we approach this with a diversity perspective. It's had a major impact on the field of human relations within diverse cultural groups. As your book mentions, person-centered therapy or person-centered theory isn't exclusive to psychotherapy any longer. It's now being applied in medical facilities, in schools, in ministry opportunities, really encouraging people to take this person-centered aspect, this person-centered approach. The person sitting in front of you and the way they view the world is the thing that matters most to you for now. So it's really being diversified, which was part of Carl Rogers' original vision for this, that it would be taken to a global and even political perspective, uh, opening up this idea. It's not just for therapists. It's really how we should be viewing each other. His work has reached more than 30 countries, and his writings have been translated into 12 languages. Another strength is that the therapist is viewed as a fellow explorer. Again, we're being with, we're joining our clients, offering some guidance, but we're not the expert in their lives. They're the expert in their lives. So we're attempting to understand the phenomenological world in an interested, accepting, and open way. So it's pretty easy here to see how this can be a welcoming approach to use for working with diverse populations. It's not perfect, though, like no theory is. And some of the shortcomings of person-centered therapy include that clients who expect a directive counselor could be put off by this unstructured approach. And as aforementioned, there are some crises where a non-directive approach could do harm. So with any theory, it's really important to keep this in mind. This is one of many tools in your tool belt as a therapist. There are times where it's appropriate to use this. There's times where it's not. Clients looking for a more directive approach or clients in a crisis that requires a more directive approach would not benefit from this modality of therapy. It's also difficult to translate the core therapeutic conditions into actual practice in certain cultures. This is a fairly individualistic approach. Um, that's one of the shortcomings of the phenomenological perspective at large. You, in your subjective reality, that idea may not translate well into other cultures. There are some aspects of person-centered therapy that are pretty artistic or poetic in nature, so trying to translate these into other languages has been an area of difficulty. 
But some contributions to the field of psychotherapy and from the person-centered approach include the work of Natalie Rogers. She was skillful in the use of nonverbal methods and expressive arts to enable individuals to heal and develop, and she really expanded on the work that her father had started. So Carl Rogers literally opened the field to research, bringing in some evidence-based practices, such as EFT, the Emotionally Focused Therapy, as a part of person-centered therapy. And we'll talk some more about expressive arts and Natalie Rogers' work during our synchronous learning. But another contribution is the philosophy and the principles of this approach. You see this in almost every therapeutic practice. It's uh, very rare to see a modern therapist who does not have person-centered therapy as part of their integration. The idea that we're warm and caring and help have unconditional positive regard for our clients is essentially an industry standard. And that's part of why Carl Rogers is so famous within our field, that he essentially rewrote how to be a therapist. These principles from person-centered therapy, essentially standard practice now. There is extensive research that supports the efficacy of person-centered therapy with a wide range of clients and problems of all age groups. With all those glittering accolades, it's almost hard for us to think of why this could be a limited or criticized approach. But there are a few things. Remember, no theory and no practitioner are perfect. The therapeutic core conditions are considered necessary for therapy to succeed. So what happens then if you do have a client who's on that list of people you feel like you just can't work with? You're not going to be an effective therapist for them, according to this theory. And the therapist's genuineness determines the power of the therapeutic relationship. So no pressure, but you have to genuinely like everybody. And is that really realistic? Perhaps not. So while this approach is one that is used by just about everybody in the field and it is highly adaptable, it does put a lot of pressure on the therapist to be kind of perfect in some ways. You have to constantly care about everything your client is saying and you have to constantly see every single person who comes in at, with this unconditional positive regard. And I'll be honest with you, there are times where that is hard. And there may be times where that feels impossible. And the difficulty with this is also that it determines the power. If you don't like your client, what's going to happen to your therapeutic relationship? Students, that brings us to the end of the asynchronous content for person-centered therapy. And believe it or not, with as much as we've covered today, there is still even more that we'll cover during our synchronous learning, specifically the role of expressive arts and motivational interviewing as a tool that we can use within the person-centered approach. So please do take the time to review the textbook, review the videos that are available for you on Canvas, for person-centered, we have the first of the Gloria videos and a real-time look at person-centered therapy with none other than Carl Rogers himself. Take the time to look over those things. Please let me know if you have any questions and we'll see you for our synchronous class where we get to practice some of these 
skills and apply this theory to our real-time counseling experience. See you then.